Are you totally different when it comes to sex and copulation? Have you judged yourself out of receiving pleasure? Have you judged yourself into receiving pleasure in certain ways and excluded other ways? Would you like to know more about what else is possible with bodies? Would you like to create confidence in the bedroom and beyond? How is your sex life or lack of it affected other areas of your life? Everyone has the potency to be a sexual superhero. Get ready to listen, sense, and play with the sexualness that is you. Now, here is the host of The Pleasure Zone, pleasure diva and body whisperer, Milica Yelenich. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Pleasure Zone. I'm your host, Milica Yelenich, and tonight we're going to have a very exciting and titillating conversation, I'm sure, as we always do here on Pleasure Zone, because that's what we're here for. We're here for titillating conversations. Um, yes, I may have some uh, Texan accents coming out once in a while, because that's, that's how it's going, because today my producer is from Texas. Actually, usually the producers are from Texas because we like Texan women producing our shows. So thank you, Keisha, for producing today. And um, what are we doing? What are we doing here? Well, today, um, one of my things is I love talking about bodies. I love talking about sex. I love talking about all things pleasure. And actually, for a little while now, we've had um, a resident doctor on in uh in the station, we have a resident doctor, Dr. Ron, and I've listened to many of his shows, and I love his shows, and and actually, it was like a few weeks ago, I thought, oh, I gotta write to Dr. Ron, and I put it off, so about uh, 37 minutes ago, just kidding, I was like, Dr. Ron, do you want to come on my show? Uh, he so graciously agreed to talk about some of the things that he's actually an expert in, um, which A, is sex, we know that he's an expert in sex, and be everything else he's an expert in, which he actually has a very long, you know, some people have like two letters after their name. Dr. Ron has about uh, 45 things after his name. He's been <laughs> playing with bodies for a really long time, both privately and in his practice. And he's actually been recognized as a national board certified naturopathic physician, which is uh, one step above, I think, the naturopathic doctors, the naturopathic physician, having earned a diploma in acupuncture and currently uh, serving the faculty of American College of, of Addictionology and Compulsive Disorders. How exciting. So many people out there with compulsive disorders, and we've got a resident expert in compulsive disorders. He has over 30 years of personal and professional experience in applying the universal principles of health and spirituality for mastering life challenges. He's not a licensed medical doctor, but uh, he has probably more information than uh, most any doctor I've ever talked to. So um, I say that if he doesn't have uh, if he's not a licensed medical doctor right now, he very well deserves to be an honorary one. So I'm I'm handing that over from the University of Melitza. You are an honorary doctor, Dr. Ron. Um, his Yay, consultations... Dr. Ron. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> his consultations are not covered by insurance, and neither are mine, by the way. Um, doctor, because <laughs> you know what my mom says? She's like, you know, the day I get covered by insurance, that probably means my work isn't as valid. So <laughs> Dr. Shainer's... Jainer's perspectives on vitality, enhancement, and lifestyle wellness 
are intended solely for personal education, coaching, and training. They're never intended to replace or contradict primary medical, osteopathic, or chiropractic medical treatment and advice. So there you go. So that's his disclaimer, Yay. even though he's brilliant. Yay, disclaimers. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, What are we doing Dr. today, Ron, young lady? So we're going to talk about sex and sex addiction, because why not? Because you're an expert in obsessive-compulsive disorders. Did you, did disorders. you get the written, uh, written permission slip from my wife? Yes, I did. And she said okay, that as good. long and as your okay. pants are off, yeah, she said as long as his pants are off and he's he touching himself, it's all good. <laughs> I said, thank you, Mrs. Shainer. That's really sweet of you. She agreed. She okay. fully agreed. And then she sent me photos to prove it. And oh I'm my good. God. We're like, we're good to go. We're, we're all set. Off. Ready to go. All <laughs> right. So, um, so let's get serious for at least 32 seconds. Our topic is sex addiction uh, and wherever else this leads us. Because um, as we were talking uh, the other day, I was talking to Dr. Ron just for fun. Um, and he really talks about uh, all the addictions having like a primary, uh, like when you really look at it, there's like a primary um, sort of cause at the very bottom of it. It's not always the same cause, but there's a primary thing that triggers everything. So, um, Dr. Ron, could you kind of give us uh, your your information, um, kind of like what you explained to me the other day about how how all of these things, like addictions, kind of like the breakdown of how they, how what you're aware of, how they actually start. Yeah. Okay. There's actually, um, if, uh, when you do addiction training, there's actually five major classes of addiction, which we primarily focus on in the medical world. Interestingly, only one of those has to do with alcohol and other drugs. So external chemicals are only one of the five major classifications of addiction. And um, the other four, and that's not all of them, by the way. Those are just the ones we usually talk about. The other four are all what we call a compulsive behavior disorder. And they are, they are be, uh, being a workaholic, being a sex addict, having an eating disorder, a compulsive eating disorder, and high-risk behavior, believe it or not, which includes things like gambling and um, other types of even high-risk sports, if you're doing them a certain way. And that's the key, because what's not well understood, even sometimes from our medical training, is that compulsive behavior, there's nothing wrong with it, believe it or not. Your body runs on memorized compulsive behaviors. when was the last time you had to cognitively, consciously think about every single nerve and muscle that twitches when you walk? Or even all of the things going on to coordinate the neurology of, of speaking? Mm-hmm. See, it all happens automatically. The vast majority, the human nervous system is the most complex um, organism in the universe. There are more neural connectors in your brain neural connections in your brain than there are atoms in the universe. We're talking about a huge capacity here, an incredible complexity. There's no way that you can cognitively track it all, nor would you want to. So most of what we do as living beings, physical beings, is done by habit. And as long as those habits serve you and your community, there's nothing wrong with them. In fact, they're very beneficial and useful. Let me give you just one example. Uh, Let's say that you exercise 45 minutes to an hour every single day. You get up in the morning, jump out of bed and go jogging, bicycle riding, swimming, whatever. We all have experienced, if we've ever done something like that, that within a few weeks, we kind of get hooked on it. 
And if you have to miss a couple of days because of some other situation, it feels very uncomfortable. Well, guess what? You developed a compulsive behavior pattern that actually helps you to exercise on a regular basis. And actually, that's really good for you. How many of us wouldn't be more healthy and happier if we did that? But now let's say that you you start enjoying this exercise thing so much that you join a gym and you decide to get involved in, let's just say, bodybuilding. We're just going to pull that out of the air. It doesn't mean that it's right, wrong, good, or bad. We're just using that as an example. It could be any type of sports activity. And now, instead of just doing an hour a day, you decide that you want to get really good at this. As a 55-year-old fat guy, I'm going to go out and be a great athlete. All right? So you start spending more and more time at the gym. And then it's, it's four or five hours a day. It's six to eight hours a day. And you're buying lots of expensive supplements and getting lots of expensive training. And all of a sudden, you lose your job because you're not showing up to work. And your wife leaves you because you're not paying any attention to her anymore. And you start using additional external chemicals so you can keep working out your poor, tired body. Now, is, what, is that a beneficial compulsive behavior? No. No. See, now we've gone over the edge into a compulsive behavior disorder. Okay. okay. And the way you can tell whether your your habit patterns are good for you or not is just st- step back, look at your life, and look at some of the factors that we're going to talk about today with just one area, sex addiction. But remember, this applies to all compulsive behaviors. That's one of the things I teach for the college is that actually even chronic illness, is riddled with compulsive behavior disorders. It's almost impossible to have a long-term illness without developing compulsive behavior, either having or developing compulsive behaviors that actually perpetuate the illness and make it more difficult to treat. So let's. So here we are. We're going to talk about sex addiction. So now mm-hmm. with that model we talked about, there is certainly a level of sex <laughs> which is beneficial. Mm-hmm. And if you had to stop and think about how to do it every time, it probably wouldn't work too well <laughs> and probably be kind not. of mechanical if it worked at all. So there's a level that's okay, but but what? So then, what is a sex addiction? All right. So you, so look at your your ex. I'm I'm a big one for comparing things we do see clearly with similar yeah. situations that maybe are a little more confusing. So we all saw the exercise example. Mostly because mm-hmm. that applied to other people, not us. <laughs> exactly. That definitely but doesn't now, apply to me. <laughs> that doesn't apply to me, so it's okay to be judgmental on that one. All right, right. But when it comes to sex, you know, this, there, is, there is that uh, jogger judgment phenomena. Uh, do mm-hmm. you know what the difference between a jogger and a runner is? Um, Anybody who runs at a per-mile pace slower than mine is a jogger. Mm-hmm. Anybody that oh, does funny. it as fast as I do and faster is a runner. That's awesome. <laughs> so anybody that has a, has less sex than I do, or or is dramatically overdoing it, is 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 an addict. Okay, they've got a problem. But people yeah. who do it about like I do, they're fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's so. So funny. how would you judge? All right. So in the example with exercise, how what were the markers that began to show us that this was changing from something that was very beneficial to something that was very detrimental to this person's life? What would you say? So if a person, say, you know, is so addicted to sex that they are now going, um, missing their work because they might have gone on a lunch break and then they ended up, you know, having sex with a complete stranger and took hours and then they, you know, get fired from their job or 
ruins their relationships. Now they're like spreading diseases all over the place or whatever. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You start to look at the consequences of the behavior that you're involved with. And the the two identifying things with addiction is uh, delusion and denial. Uh, You begin to actually delude yourself into thinking that something's good for you that isn't. And when other people point it out to you, you deny it because you're living, you're actually living in an alternate reality. And it ultimately becomes a psychosis, which is what a compulsive behavior is. Uh, it's a, it's a, a, an ongoing reality. And if it doesn't serve you, it's not a very good one for you. So you start looking at consequences and connections. Now, the reason I put connections in there is because I'd like to say this is new research, but so often in medicine, you know, they taught, there's a saying in medicine and science that med- medical science progresses one funeral at a time. <laughs> yeah, it takes so a true. long time for us to get it. Anytime you have a stru- an authoritative structure, I don't care whether it's religion, science, medicine, it could be anything. But once something is the authority, it gets really hard to convince people who have been using that as the authority or acting themselves as an authority based on their training in that system that they might be wrong. Now, nowhere is that more dangerous than in medicine. We estimate that about half of what we know about medicine changes every five to seven years. Yeah. So if you graduated from medical school and you're still doing the exact same things that you were doing 30 years ago when you graduated, there's really a very small part of what you're doing as a doctor that's still valid. And yet Mm -hmm. that's how our system is because it's all run on – and it's gotten worse with insurance, believe it or not, both reimbursement and malpractice because now it's the law to do things the way that the established protocols, what they call accepted community standard of practice. So people who are innovators – I posted something on my Facebook just uh, yesterday – the doctor in the 1800s, uh, mid to late 1800s, who advocated that doctors should wash their hands between patients and after doing autopsies oh, yeah. and surgeries, literally went insane because he was criticized and ostracized so much and died in an insane asylum of a septic infection, which would have been prevented under sanitary if they actually, Yeah, if they I remember active. watching a movie. There's actually a movie uh, with him in it. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a great movie for sure. So I'm not sure what it's called, but yeah, it's it's so what funny we're going to like talk that. about now is Rat Disneyland because yeah, I Disneyland, love your Rat Disneyland. <laughs> yeah, because that was discovered. Pro- I think it was back in the 70s when the the research was done. But prior to that, we love animal studies. You know, we love picking on helpless animals. So the original addiction studies uh, with animals with rats was you put a rat all by himself in a cramped cage under stress, and you give him two water bottles. Now, you, you, you feed him. He's provided with food, but other than that, he gets two water bottles. One is pure water. The other one is laced with either cocaine, cocaine or heroin. A stressed rat in those conditions will invariably become physically addicted to the drugs and will literally ignore their food, ignore resting, until they literally die of starvation. And so based on that type of model, and there were other types of studies done, addiction is treated as if it's a physical problem. And yes, there is a physical component there. 
but let and this will apply to sex addiction so normally you're you're looking at we've developed a model where the way we treat things like this whether it's heroin addiction or sex addiction is enforced abstinence we withdraw the yeah. cocaine water or we don't let you have access to partners <laughs> um, mm -hmm. or put you in a rehab facility and then medicate you to control the, the, the urges or give you something. What really happens, believe it or not, is most of the drugs we use to treat addiction are addictive themselves. But because mm -hmm. of the way they're designed, they don't get you quite – they're not as efficient as the drug you were addicted to. But you're still an addict. Now, the, a researcher in the 70s looked at this and – uh, he must have been pretty creative, must have been a humanoid, uh, because he thought, <laughs> this doesn't make a – what would happen if we didn't stress the rat and offer him drugs? So what they did is they created Rat Disneyland. They had a big airy cage with lots of rat toys, lots of rat girls to have SEX with, uh, lots of playtime, plenty of food. And then they stuck the two water bottles in there. Guess what? They never had a rat who did more than taste the drug-laced water once. Did they have addictive rats that were addicted to sex after that? Or they were no. not so addicted Possibly. to sex? No, they were but getting... That's okay. where we're headed with, with this. How do you know okay. whether too much is too much, or is it an addiction, or is it just right? Mm -hmm. You see? And this is going to tell you the key. Because in Rat Disneyland, the people, the, the rats had minimal stresses, plenty of recreational outlets, and lots of connection with the social community. Neat. Yeah. You see? So one of the things you look like, we go to the exercise example, for example. Um, where were the, the social connections that began to disappear as this person got more and more obsessed with exercise or sex or heroin or anything else? They lost their job. They lost connections to their family, lost connection to their friends and their children until they were isolated and literally their best friend was their addiction. Mm -hmm. The other thing to understand about addictive compulsive behavior disorder is, and this is, this is one of the big fallacies in thinking about addiction because we even have uh, government programs just say no, right? Well, guess what? Addiction is not in the part of the brain where you think. In fact, addiction can't even hear words. It's in a part of the brain that doesn't understand words. It mm -hmm. wires into the survival centers of the midbrain cerebellum. And it's the same part of the brain that controls breathing and heartbeat and fight or flight. Which means that, for example, if I held someone's, if we, if we were so mean as to hold someone's head underwater for several minutes, every single one of us would eventually breathe the water. Or try to. Now, does that help you? No. Is it logical? No. You actually no. would live longer if you could hold your breath longer. Why do yes. you do it? Because in an extreme situation, your body centers, these body behavior programs have the authority to shut off the thinking neocortex and take over and just try to stay alive with doing what it knows how to do, which in this case is breathing. Addiction mm -hmm. wires into that same part of the brain. And so once someone is in a situation where they're destroying their life with addictive compulsive behavior, they're not using to feel good. That's the next big lie about addiction. A true addict is not using to feel good, to get high. They're using to survive. 
they're using to avoid the pain of dying. See, actually addiction, I'll throw a big word at you, is a disease of anhedonia. That's a great word. Isn't that a great word? So to note, remember what it means. What's the definition of a hedonist? Somebody who enjoys all pleasures. Right. They're, They're enjoying life. They enjoy pleasure. So someone who has anhedonia, like the ante of pleasure. They can't so feel pleasure no matter what they do. They can't do. feel it. Oh, they can't wow. Feel it. The only time they feel even a little spark of pleasure is when whatever their addictive uh, chemical or behavior triggers a little surge of dopamine in the brain. And what's dopamine? It's the neurotransmitter that tells you you're doing good. It's a pleasure mm-hmm. chemical. Okay? That's why yeah. we call it dope. Dope is for dopamine. It substitutes for that pleasure. The problem mm-hmm. is all of these things wear out the production of dopamine and they clog up the receptors for dopamine so that every single time you either use your drug or engage in the behavior that allows you to create your own drug or dopamine surge, it gets a little less efficient. And eventually, you'll drop below the level of misery where you were when you first took the drug. And now you're Mm -hmm. miserable all the time, and you're just taking the edge off the pain when you use. Okay? So that's kind of a a quick overview of how it works. And after the break, we can come back, and uh, I'll tell you how that applies to sex addiction. Yes, sir. I like that you're just you're like I'm going to just. I just happen to see on my screen. Oh my God! Got to stop talking. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. That was really cool. We can head to break now for sure. Many of us have created a lot of limitations around sex and what we are willing to choose. What else is possible beyond what we have already seen, heard, or thought of? What if now is the time for a totally different sexual revolution? Taking the taboo out of all aspects of sex, sexuality, and copulation by tuning in to the Pleasure Zone radio show with body whisperer Milica Yelenich. You'll receive tools, inspiration, and a foundation to allow your to receive more in your sex life and quite possibly other areas of your life as well. Listen for The Pleasure Zone with Melissa every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central Time, 6 p.m. Mountain Time, and 5 p.m. Pacific Time on InspiredChoicesNetwork.com. How long have you been waiting to uncloak your magic? To allow the magic within you to rise and catalyze into an extraordinary life deep down you know is possible. Live Your Magic is a two and a half day experience that will move you beyond your mind, ignite your body, and activate the magic that is you. If you are ready to radically tap into your desires, generate more aliveness in your body and your life, then join us at a Live Your Magic event somewhere in the world. Go to MeganSolito.com and click on events to learn more today. That's M-E-G-A. A-N-S-I-L-L-I-T-O.
This is the Pleasure Zone with Body Whisperer Melissa Yanich. To participate in the program today, please call in the U.S. Call 815-880-8255. That's T-A-L-K. Or Canada 613-800-8736. Or you can Skype us at Inspired Choices Network. You can also make the choice to ask or comment by email at melissayelenich.com. Now back to the program. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to The Pleasure Zone. I'm your host, Milica Yelenich, and today I've got Dr. Ron Jainer on, and we're talking about addiction, mainly sex addiction. And for the first um, part of the show, Dr. Ron gave us a breakdown of how addiction um, actually works uh, in a way. So um, in talking about something called anhedonia, the inability to actually have pleasure or have pleasure in your life, which is like a wow thing to me. I'd never heard that word. I guess I hadn't looked it up. And um, it's a wow moment in my world to hear about that. Um, Before we jump back into the program, I want to let you guys know that Dr. Ron has so many things going on. He doesn't just have a a private practice, which he does have that too. He also does, like he's actually got an online class going on starting um, today, which is the 13th, uh, Monday the 13th. I can't remember the time of it, right? The second, but it's a six-week class. And if you guys would like to have some coaching and assistance uh, from Dr. Ron, please, like, you can private message me. You can check him out on his webpage, which we will have linked um, to the to the event uh, on Inspired Choices Network. You can also find him on Facebook, Dr. Ron Jainer, or Ron Jainer, I think. I don't know if you have the doctor on there. Um, Yeah, find him. Find this man and connect with him. Dr. Ron, D-R-R-O-N-J-A-H-N-E-R.com. Awesome. Thank you. So... Um, that's a great way to find out about his upcoming classes. Also, pay attention to my Facebook page because I'm going to be posting them on there. So I think his work is amazing. Yay. And, yeah, and for anybody who's uh, interested in actually changing this in their life, I think uh, you might choose to check this out. So, Dr. Ron, welcome back after break. Hey, hey, how we doing? <laughs> We're doing good. Are we we're, all over we're our addictions now? <laughs> yes, it's done. I'm done. Now that I know that it's, you know, based on anhedonia, what can I choose to actually start to have pleasure in my life where I'm right. not replacing it with some other thing that will become There's a new addi- the key addiction? Right there. Yeah. So, it, where, where in, from your point of view of what we've talked about so far, where does sex change from being a pleasurable activity? no matter how often you're doing it, and literally become a compulsive behavior addiction? Is it about how often you do it? No. I think it's more about my response to it. Exactly. And the consequences in your life of whatever you're doing. So this is my definition of addiction. I'm not looking at addiction as somebody who gets drunk, for example, with alcohol. If you, you know, if you, if you, um, uh, if your best friend just died and your wife left you and your dog ran away and so- ran away and somebody stole your truck, you know the quintessential country song, yeah. you, and you <laughs> go out and get drunk to, to dull the pain, that's not being an addict. Mm-hmm. You see, that's situational depression, <laughs> and it may yeah. actually be a medicating of an actual condition. There's even a verse in the Bible that says somebody in that in that type of situation should use 
something to dull the pain to get them through that transition. Mm-hmm. I was shocked when my dad, who's a minister, showed me that. <laughs> but anyway, so if 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 you, uh, it's not about how frequent. It's about the things we just talked about. The first one we talked about: what are the, how is it affecting the social connections and consequences, and the consequences of the behavior in your life? Mm-hmm. How is it affecting your family? How is it affecting your work? How is it affecting your health? You see, if you continue doing this long term, this is a great way to check. If I were to continue doing what I'm doing long term, how's that going to work for me? What's my life going to be like in five years? What's my life going to be like in 10 years? And see, each of the drugs, depending on how strongly they manipulate our end behaviors, that dopamine area of the brain, that dopamine mechanism, okay, each of the each of them works a little differently, a little more efficiently, okay? And so, for example, with cocaine, if you're a real heavy user, you really get into it, you can actually burn yourself out in three to six weeks. Yeah. Um, but most of the time it's a little longer, but, some, but it's a very fast-acting drug. Uh, heroin, methamphetamines, usually people, if they're heavy users, they last a year or two. Alcohol is one of the most insidious because it takes an average of 15 to 20 years before it causes enough body damage that you reach the point of no return. Now, by the time you've been using it that long, and especially because it's relatively socially acceptable, changing it is very difficult. Uh, A little-known fact, more alcoholics die in withdrawal, in Mm -hmm. detox, than heroin addicts do by a substantial margin because the body has become so habituated to it. So anyway, you're going to look at the connections and consequences in your life and then recognize that that has nothing to do with morality. Now, obviously, the consequences can, but Mm -hmm. addiction isn't in the part of your nervous system where you have cognition, morals, ethics, or concern for other people. So if you're going to part of it, (laughs) those are part of the consequences. Yeah. But it's not part of the mechanism. Yeah. And it's not in a part of the brain that has access to that part of the brain. It's in a part of the brain that goes so far, like I say, doesn't even understand words. You actually need a translation system to deal with that part of the brain because words don't work. We can't do talk therapy to get us out of addiction. It takes something more. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then recognize that it's a disease of anhedonia. The very thing you're trying to get from the addiction is what you'll never get from the addiction, okay? (laughs) Because addiction literally destroys your ability to experience pleasure, you see? Now, I just described kind of the relative strengths of some of the chemical addictions. Where do you... Now, remember, there's one class of five. There's actually another class, but we don't like to talk about that one. (laughs) I guess most people don't know how to treat it. But before the end of the show, you remind me and I'll tell you. Uh, Oh, I do remember. We talked about it, but yes. Yeah, the one that nobody wants to go near. Nobody wants to go there, including us. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We might avoid it. Of the five that we talked about, chemical addictions, including alcohol, um, sex addiction, work addiction, eating addictions, and high-risk behavior addictions, basically being an adrenaline junkie, all right? Mm-hmm. Which ones out of all of those do you think is the most, e- most efficient model? Which, one is, which ones of those, which one is the most difficult to treat? Which one would be the easiest to treat? Uh, the drugs and alcohol. Exactly. 
because it's an external thing that you can restrict people from. Now, that doesn't cure anybody. No. But you can tell somebody you're not allowed to drink for the rest of your life. Good luck on making it stick, but, you know, you can tell them that. <laughs> you can tell them that or, or you can put them in a facility where they don't have access. All right. But how do you tell an anorexic girl that I can fix this? But, but you can't eat ever not, again. You can't eat for the rest of your life. <laughs> oh, wait yeah. a minute. You see? Or I I can fix your workaholic nature, but you're not going to be able to provide for your family anymore because you can't work for the rest of your life. Your nervous system can't handle that. Yeah. So as soon as you go to the behavioral addictions, you're dealing with something that is actually far more challenging to treat. And our conventional model of abstinence and replacement drugs doesn't work very well for any of them. No, I wouldn't think so. And so they have like, you know, they've got NA and they've got AA, but they've also got uh, like for sex addicts, they've got like sex addiction, 12 step programs, too. But, um, you know, when I look at all of these and in the past, I was like part of the family and friends of alcoholics group. Even when I was in it, I couldn't understand how this is going to work because none of these people are truly choosing something different. Right. Go to an AA meeting. And, and by their own estimation, uh, uh, less than 5% of people who use AA ever, be, ever are able to maintain long-term abstinence. That's not a yeah. condemnation of it. That's actually better than most treatment programs. Wow. And because it doesn't cost anything, it's actually a pretty beneficial program that, that in that sense. okay. So it's so bad that the standard of care, there's about 20,000 addiction facilities in the United States, for example. The standard of care in order to get government funding is roughly if you can keep two out of three people in your program sober for 30 days, you're a good program. Holy Period. cow. We're not going to talk long-term recidivism because nobody's doing a good job with that. Uh, we're not going to talk about you know how many times they come back and so forth. Mm-hmm. No, so – Interestingly, we now have in many countries, uh, I know the United States is because the school I work with was a part of developing it, we have what are called drug courts. So if mm-hmm. the average person goes in to be uh, um, on, a, on a drug charge, uh, if they're indigent, they're likely to get jail time. Okay, But if you're a professional, if you're somebody who has money and pays taxes, or if, you, if they think that you have dependents or whatever the extenuating circumstances are, they actually establish a different, a full uh, uh, alternative drug, what they call drug court, where you go really? and and be prior to before they sentence you to going to jail, you're given the option of being sentenced to rehab. Wow. Okay. And that might be one to three months, depending on the government funding available or or whatever. So, um. The school, the, the the people with the school I work with were involved in uh, Florida with that in the Miami area. Now the statistics on drug court are roughly that um, again two out of three. Even when you're sentenced, they're still only getting two out of three sober for 30 days. That's why you're starting to see three week programs because they don't count against your statistics. Uh, and, mm-hmm. and understand that the government also says that if you don't do 90 days of rehab, it's probably worthless. Okay, right, but then they're giving a, you 21-day programs. Exactly, because for financial – or they're, or now, like, you can go places and they'll give you an IV that flushes the, the, the opiates out of your system and tell you you're cured. Uh, wow. It doesn't work. <laughs> no. Oh, yeah, it's a big thing out on the funny. West Coast. 
All right. Holy so cow. anyway, you're looking at um, two out of three for 30 days. 70 to 90% end up being rearrested within a year. Now, that's the only way they really can track recidivism. They get rearrested mm-hmm. for an offense, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, if you come at this with a different approach, and there's three or four things you can do that come from the world of integrative complementary medicine and therapy. If you do even one of these, you get nearly 100% of the people sober for the 30 days, and the recidivism rate, the rearrest rate in a year, is somewhere between 5 and 10%. Wow. Why aren't we using it? Because, because it's not free? It, well, <laughs> no, because it isn't. it doesn't cost enough. Okay. How much that's money you spent on medication to treat addicts? How Ooh. much money is spent Man, on the drugs a themselves? A lot. A lot. Yeah, and we're talking about it's it. You know, we can go on and on. One of one of I talked about it yesterday on the interview I did uh, on the open mic. One of my biggest issues is not with things we don't know how to fix or things that we know how to fix but they're too expensive to be used. My issue with our current medical system is the things that are in the medical literature that we know work, but they don't generate enough huge profit to be uh, sponsored by corporate uh, pharmaceutical and medical interests. And this mm-hmm. is one of them, see. So anyway, that's that's beside the point. But the, but the issue is what will change it, all right? So first off, just to make sure we're clear, um, what is a sex addiction? How would you define it now compared to maybe what we walked through the door with at the beginning of the show? Yeah, so maybe when I walked through the door, I would have thought it's somebody who, you know, has to have sex 10 times a day. Um, But, you know, it doesn't matter. Now, like, I really get, um, because I could see it in alcoholism. I could see that it's where it changes your life, where you could lose your job, you could lose your family, your personality has changed so much um, that people around you aren't interested in being around you. So, yeah, your connections to people, your work, and your health are all affected. Exactly. So the frequency isn't the prime determinant. I mean, if you get infatuated with the cute young lady at the office, and you know for a fact you can't keep this secret, your wife's going to find out and leave you, you're probably going to get fired for sexual harassment, uh, your whole life's going to fall apart, you're going to lose your job, everything, but you still, like the, 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 the bull with the hook in its nose, go ahead and have a fling with that person and your whole life falls apart. Now, that may be only just a few times or even once, mm-hmm. but would, you, would that be a compulsive behavior disorder? I would say yes, because Absolutely. it ruins your life. Yeah. It ruins your life, but you couldn't stop yourself or thought you could. Yeah. You see? So the frequency can be an indicator that you've got a problem, or may, perhaps. But what you really want to look at are those connections and consequences. What's my life going to be like in five years if I, if I keep doing this the way I'm doing it? Okay. So when somebody is truly like an, an addict, like, and they're really in the groove of it, um, can they even hear the reasoning behind asking, like when you start asking, or, or, or perceive the energy of what will my life be like no. in five years? or No. Two? No. No, they really can't because, again, the addiction is not in the part of the brain where you think words. and figure things out or you yeah. get words, okay? So it, the, it's, um, it's very interesting. And just as a side point, because I know a lot of your listeners know what I mean when I say a humanoid. <laughs> and basically yep. it's just a, a catchphrase for a, a very intelligent, creative person who probably also has strong willpower. Well, interestingly, 
people who are highly creative, a little above average intelligence, maybe a lot above average intelligence, and are very strong-willed, kind of the definition of what we call a humanoid, are at yep. extremely higher risk for addiction and psychosis. Addiction really is a psychosis. So mm-hmm. why would that be? Why would um, it be worse in, in, in creative people? Well, because they are creative and their mind is going to go to different places looking for new possibilities. Like, ooh, what if I try this? What if I try that? Oh, I'll try that. Ooh, what if I work five more hours? Exactly. What's that going to create? And how all those different scenarios, what we could even call realities, how well can you sustain those? You have a reality. You have a persona at work, a persona in your family. Uh, you have a, a play creative persona. And how powerful are you in those different personas? I'm now, really quite effective in all my personas. Exactly. <laughs> I think that I could be more effective. So, so <laughs> what if you lock into a persona that involves a non-beneficial compulsive behavior and you yeah. you get so deeply entrained to that, you see, that that it actually overrides all the other realities that you work with in a normal way. We all have different moods, different modes, different states of being. Nothing wrong with mm-hmm. that. Different situations so forth. You're not the same with your family as you are with the people at work. You know, and that's normal. So what what is the one key factor? We're going to do one more thing here while we're talking. What would be the one common denominator that would force you into just one reality that doesn't even serve you that well? Oh, I guess it would be, um, for one thing, if I was choosing... If I felt like I had no other choice, I might choose right. something that was going to destroy my life. Okay. And you're absolutely correct, except you introduced a higher function of choosing, which is a function of the uh, the neocortex and higher higher being. Okay? Okay. So go back to the illustration of holding your head underwater. Who's doing yeah. the choosing when you're, he- you're about to die? <laughs> well, your body just responds. Your body right, just reacts. Start. There is no yeah. choosing. It's an yeah. auto-response survival system. Yeah. And what I find in everyone that has any kind of compulsive behavior disorder, and most of the time, the vast majority of chronic illnesses, that at the bottom of it, if you ever get to the bottom of it, there is a survival trauma. There, you're dealing with post-trauma stress disorder, adverse childhood events, but some point in their life, Things happen that kick in that auto-survival response, and it just mm-hmm. so happens that the addictive behavior or chemical was available, and the body began to associate surviving that stress with the addictive behavior or chemical. Mm, yep. Okay. That's brilliant. Yeah. It's just so simple the way you put it. It's like just that's the way it goes. Like, I wish it was that yeah, easy was, to change. <laughs> right? It's like there was stress, there was a reaction, chemical reaction, you become a you like that chemical reaction, you keep creating that. Awesome. That it's so simply put. Right. And so what would be the way to deal with it? What's the most efficient way to deal with it? And um that would be the question because we know that enforced abstinence doesn't work all that well. We know that substitute drugs don't work all that well. What would work? Well, what we talked about yesterday was mm-hmm. that when you work with people, you get them to go instead of you, you get them to create more of a, like you're talking about it as peaks and valleys, and you get them to look at the peaks 
more mm-hmm. to keep choosing right. so that their peaks that even so in the past for example their old high might have been at a level 2 where if they keep choosing more into what would create more happiness for them that their their newest low might be a 2 right right so the choosing now becomes very important because choosing is the primary function of the higher thinking the higher brain centers okay so that is part of it but now you have to look at since the part of the body especially the survival mechanisms don't listen to words and logic mm-hmm. you need a translator right and and there's basically three ways that that in the body there's the the whole limbic system is the translator by the way you really have three mm-hmm. parts of the brain not just your thinking center and body center you have a limbic system in between and what's mm-hmm. the purpose of the limbic system it assigns emotional significance to your thoughts and transmits that emotional signal to the body. The body reacts to emotions and feelings. There's three things your body reacts to. Emotions and feelings, mm-hmm. body sensations and behaviors, mm-hmm. and pictures. Your body can, can react to a picture. Sure, yeah. Okay? So if you can communicate to yourself or with a client, in terms of emotions and feelings, sensations and, and behaviors, and p- pictures, and mm-hmm. then allow, uh, train the person to make a different choice in, those, in one of those three areas, your body has to follow because the body can't think. The body just reacts to emotions, sensory input, and pictures, and it has memorized programs for all of that. And one of the big discoveries in medicine in the last uh, 15, 20 years was that emotional memories and behaviors are not stored in your brain. 95% of them are in your body, Mm two-thirds in your digestive tract. And so apparently all of these memorized patterns are not triggered by thoughts. Now, a thought can trigger an emotion, but these patterns of behavior and even metabolic function are all paying attention to that emotion, not to the thought. This is why it's hard to talk yourself out of this. But if you find a way, and this is what I teach in my classes, is dozens of different ways that you can actually, instead of being at the mercy of your emotions and feelings and thoughts, you can actually begin to transform them to what you want them to be. I tell people, kind of think of like all the behavior patterns are stored in filing cabinets in your body, but instead of having words on the file drawers, it has different flavors of intensity of different emotions. And as soon as the body gets a signal of this particular emotion, it goes to that drawer and pulls out the behaviors associated with that feeling. And then it runs them. Doesn't think about it, doesn't judge it, it just runs them. It's automatic. But what if you could assign a different emotional value uh, to a certain thought and then get the, the body's going to go to a different drawer. What yeah. if you could change the label? Freaking brilliant, <laughs> right? That's what that's we just, do in our Yeah, that is brilliant. That that There's simplicity in that too. And I can see, yeah, I mean, sometimes the most simple things are the most effective. Absolutely. And it's profoundly powerful because it's working with how your body works. You're not fighting your body. You're working with your body. Yeah. Now, as a modality... So so freaking cool. 
everybody yeah. in the world should just call you and have a class with you <laughs> or a session with you. Absolutely. We should, we should what I think. A, yeah, why don't you and I set up a 900 number and they're just 24 hours a day. I think that's a, a really good idea. Yeah, 24 hours a day. Dr. Ron will just like give you some Call news. in, ask your questions. <laughs> that's right. $500 cuz it's going to be worth like $55,000 worth of therapy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And see that since you brought up therapy, I do want to point out one other thing before we leave. There mm-hmm. is a name for the a broad umbrella of this type of work, but unfortunately as so often occurs in medicine and in our culture, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what that label means. And you just mm-hmm. used the word therapy. Right? It is a broad word. It's a very broad word, and it's not the right word when you're dealing with addiction and compulsive behavior disorders, even though that's where the model is. But what? But mm-hmm. if you look at what we've been doing in our success rate, therapy doesn't work. No, coaching does. Coaching does. But there's also yeah. misunderstandings about coaching, because a lot of people who call themselves coaches are kind of like uh, watered-down therapists without a license. And they're trying to imitate what a doctor or a therapist would do um, and call it coaching so they don't get in trouble. (laughs) Or, or, you know, I'm not trying to, you know, a lot of them do a lot of good, okay? Mm -hmm. And they present information that maybe doctors wouldn't have access to, like on diet and vitamins and things like that. But nonetheless, you're still trying to be a pseudotherapist. Coaching is not therapy. Coaching technically is not even education. It's not parenting. It's a totally different thing. So listen carefully, folks, because here's my definition of coaching. And it's so important because this model of coaching may be the most important factor in in society, medicine, therapy, whatever you want to call it, over the next 20, 30 years. And it's not me saying that. That's what the research is saying. Mm-hmm. Okay? Coaching is facilitating someone else to have more clarity about their own life, ask better questions, see other possibilities, and here's your choosing, and choose for themselves which one might work better for them. And then the really tough part at the end, empower themselves to motivate Mm -hmm. themselves to actually do something about it. Now, where in that do we have therapy? Therapy is being a medical auto mechanic. We're talking you about your brain. past a lot, right? Like in the past well, you and then can you get... be, But in reality, no. But, uh, yeah. but that's where we usually start because that's what people yeah. are looking for, okay? So therapy is about uh, someone doing something for you. In other words, okay. if I need brain... The last time I tried to do brain surgery on myself, oh my God, what a mess. It was really tricky, so, right? Yeah. There are times when you when you we all require an expert to come in and fix our car, fix our body, fix our mm-hmm. our television, you see? That's therapy. Education is someone telling you what to do. Okay? Mm-hmm. Coaching goes one step further because there's in nine out of ten cases the research indicates that the reason we go to doctors, particularly for chronic issues, and addiction is very much a chronic issue, but the reason we go to doctors is for only two things. When you get down to the bottom of it, lifestyle choices and how you're handling the stress in your life. Believe it or not, it's always there. And it's really one thing because most of the lifestyle choices that are messing us up, like addiction or compulsive behaviors, disorders, are based on the fact we can't deal with our stress. And we're looking for a way out. You see? So how stress isn't the issue, right? It's how we deal with it. 
It's how you deal with it. And I don't know about you, Melitza, but how well does it work when somebody tells you what you're supposed to do to change your life? Yeah, I don't like it at all. (laughs) No, we don't even listen to our doctor when he tells us, if you don't do this, you're going to die. Yeah, Yeah, it's my life and I'll do what I want. (laughs) Right? So coaching is a brilliant art of facilitating someone else to choose for themselves and motivate themselves to make a different lifestyle choice as they learn how to handle their stress differently for themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's such an important concept, and it's the key to almost all chronic disorders, including addiction, that I actually include that in my training programs. So we have we our, our telecalls, for example, are for all types of disorders. And because this is all related, you can have any of this and you can get on a call and we can work with you because the underlying mechanism is very similar because the body works the same way. But we also have a component and a track for people who are coaches or would like to be coaches where along with the training, we 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 give instruction in how to do this for your, for yourself and others and coaching because it's not just a mental thing we're it, we're dealing with behaviors and motivation self motivation you learn to be a good coach by by being coached within this model so mm-hmm. all of my trainings include both and that's not just for people who want to make a living at being a coach uh, every parent is a coach to their child if you have a chronically ill person in the house and you're a caregiver you're their coach, you see? So coaching applies in all areas of life where we would like to be able to facilitate and encourage someone else to make better choices for themselves and act on them. And that's coaching. And that's what I do. Cool. And now that you've said that, you know, for the most part, that's what I do. I also do therapy, though, because I do work on backs and bodies and stuff and more sure. in an osteopathic kind of way. Um, so, yeah, I do that. And I do, too, well. because that's, I've had yeah. 40 years of experience, that's 30, 40 years of working with bodies. And there's nothing yeah. wrong with that. But 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 the body work, as far as this area, your body mm-hmm. work becomes an adjunct to helping the person change why they showed up in your office in the first place. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So there's nothing wrong with therapy. Nothing. When I train doctors, I tell them, I'm not here to tell you that what you're doing is wrong. Because we all need the various specialties of doctors in one area or another. And they all do good work in in certain areas for certain people. But this is something totally different. This is why people break down and end up in the doctor's office. And more importantly, why when something is chronic, it doesn't get well. Totally. I want to say thank you so much, Dr. Ron, for coming on today. I love listening to you. Um, sure, I'm going to be joining your calls because <laughs> your, your information is so awesome. And uh, I am I was, like, very excited that I got to uh, do some stuff with some of your shows as well. So I got to listen to them. Just so much fun. So thank you so much. Have a great week. Thank you. Thank you for choosing to listen to The Pleasure Zone. Melissa Yelenich will return next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 7 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Mountain, and 5 p.m. Pacific on InspireChoicesNetwork.com. We hope you'll join us. Until then, have the best week of your life by choosing to be turned on and tuned in to your body.